Good job, buddy. That's good. <clears throat> well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to <clears throat> invite you to turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And um, we have been dealing with the greatest chapter on the Bible on dealing with the aspect of forgiveness. And we're dealing with it in the chapter 2 because the whole book of 2 Corinthians deals with the aspect of how to really be everything that God wants us to be in dealing with people. And I've said it many, many times that the ministry is people. Nowhere in the Word of God does God ever acknowledge or ever recognize any child of God that should not be involved in ministry to some degree. And uh, it's the reason that we've talked about and made such a, uh, a point in talking about is the fact that God saved you for a purpose. And uh, so we've been coming through Second Corinthians, and we've been dealing with it in a way that we're trying to help you get all the principles down that, that this great book does in dealing with ministry. Chapter 2 is just one aspect of it. You're going to see that every chapter does lay itself out in a unique way of giving us another aspect of really what ministry is all about. And uh, you remember now in chapter 2 that all of chapter 2 is built around something that happened in chapter 1. And I told you this when we started this chapter, that in chapter 1, uh, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that there was a problem in the church at Corinth of immorality. And it was in a relationship within a family. And the guy uh, that committed it didn't want to get right, didn't want to do what was right. So they, in modern terms, they churched him. And if you don't know what the term be the church means, it means that the church uh, broke off fellowship with him, which is what they're supposed to do when somebody doesn't want to do right. You're going to find that uh, we all make mistakes and God's people uh, are all human. We talked last week or Thursday night about that God's people are saints. And, uh, but uh, you find out that God's people, even though technically speaking, are saints, God's people, practically speaking, are not always saints. <laughs> and it's a thing where uh, that's just the way it goes in life. And as long as somebody, you know, wants to repent for what they've done and wants to uh, make it right, uh, we all make mistakes, some on different levels. But the bottom line is the job of the church is reconciliation, trying to help people get back where they need to be, get done in their life what needs to get done, and help them through the issues of life. Well, this guy originally didn't want to do that. You know, he, I don't know all the details aren't given, but it's very clear from what Paul says that he gets an attitude about it. And you're going to find that many people, when they get into sin, they do, for various reasons. We'll get into that all when we get into the counseling aspect of it. But by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, and there's probably a year passes between the writing of the first book and the writing of the second book, this man now wants to do what's right. And this comes to Paul's attention. So Paul writes this church and says, hey, look, just like you took a stand against him when he wouldn't do what's right, now that he wants to do what's right, you've got to take a stand with him. And he writes them 2 Corinthians chapter 2, which really helps that church deal with it, but even more than that, it forms the basis for us as a church, as us as individuals. 
to understand and learn how to apply probably the greatest single aspect of our Christianity, and that is learning to forgive people. And uh, that's key. And last week, we looked at verse 11, where it says that if you don't learn to forgive, uh, then you learn that Satan gets, a disadvantage, gets the advantage over you. And that was in, we were in chapter 2, verse 11. And it says in that verse, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I told you that there was two parts to that verse. And uh, last week, we, we examined just one of them. We talked about Satan uh, not getting the advantage over us. And uh, I told you with that first part, we got an incredible uh, amount of insight about dealing with people with problems. But before we do that, let me just, I want to focus on uh, something here that's that going to keep everybody on the right track. And I'm getting a lot of questions from you, uh, and I know that when you get a crowd this size and you try to get everybody to do uh, the same thing, I know that many times I don't explain things well. Many times I explain things because I understand that I think that you do, and it, you know I don't probably do it very well. And uh, most of the time, that's not true. Most of the time, it's your problem. But every once in a while, it can be mine. No, I'm just telling you. But I want you to, everybody to stay on page with this. Right now, in all that we're trying to do, if, you, if you're going to be part of this up-and-coming counseling aspect, or if you just want to learn the material for a later time in your life, that's cool, too. Uh, you should be doing uh, this work and getting... Basically, right now, the first 30 principles under your belt. Let me tell you how this should work so everybody gets it clear in their mind. I already, we went through chapter 1 in the first half, chap, first half of chapter 2. We did that in about four or five weeks. Then, a couple of weeks ago, I took one Sunday and I went back over and I gave you, we dedicated that Sunday to just those 30 principles. And I said, you need to have these down right now and work on these. All right? That was several weeks ago. We've got several more weeks to go, probably four or five weeks between when I taught the last 30 and I'm going to teach you the next 30, that all you need to be working on right now, all you need to be focused on right now is the 30 principles that I gave you. You need to make sure that you get two things done. You get the running commentary of First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and half a chapter 2 up to speed. You have everything in there that you need, and you get those 30 principles that I gave you last time uh, in the back of your Bible. You have four or five weeks to get that done. While you're doing that, I'm continuing teaching the end of chapter 2, we're in it now, and then into some of chapter 3. And while I'm doing that, you just simply work on what I gave you the 30 principles last time. Don't worry about what I'm doing now. Some of you are asking me, well, last week, was this a principle, that a principle? Don't worry about that. If you start getting ahead of yourself, I'm not even decided what principles I'm going to give you these next 30 yet. But you need to work only on one thing right now, and that is the last 30 that I gave you, get those in your Bible, and then get the Get the material around the book of first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and half a chapter 2 to bring it up to speed. Now, you can go ahead and begin to outline chapter 2 beyond that if you're in good shape. That's okay. But don't worry about the principles yet. In another couple of weeks, 
maybe three weeks. I'll take another Sunday and I'll give you the next 30 principles. And then you go to work on them. Right now, don't worry about uh, what I'm giving you as far as the principles. Just enjoy it, ponder it, think about it, learn from it, but we'll deal with it later. And that's the way you've got to approach this. Now, going back to where we started here, here's what we learned uh, about last week. And you, you want to get this into a rhythm uh, by the first part of, of, of verse 11. And this is the concept of forgiving spirit of the ministry. We learn that when we don't forgive, an automatic pattern comes into play. An automatic thing takes over. Unforgiveness leads to anger. Anger, when you think about it, leads to, in time, hatred. And hatred in time leads to bitterness. And that's the pattern we learned last week. And I gave you the definitive passage on bitterness is found in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 15. And it's very important that you'll want to get this outline in your Bible that I gave you about Hebrews chapter 12. I talked about the root of bitterness. think that's invaluable. The root of bitterness that we learned last week is where it all starts with you and me. There's a root to every problem we have. When we get into dealing with counseling, I'm going to show you the root of every problem that a person gets. Because as dealing with people, it's invaluable. Because what happens many times in dealing with people, and most counselors do this, uh, most Christians do this, when a person has a problem, most people, most pastors, most people that deal with people, uh, they miss the real problem and wind up treating the symptoms of the problem. And that never works. You never fix a person's problem in their life by dealing with their symptoms because the symptoms are never the root problem. You've got to learn what the root problem is. Now, when you're dealing with somebody who cannot forgive, it isn't a fact that, well, they, you don't deal with the fact that, well, I know so-and-so said this about you. I know that they did this to you. I know that they hurt you this way. And you, gotta, you, gotta, you, gotta, you don't deal with it that way. In every problem a person has, there's a root of that problem. And dealing biblically with people, well, the only way you get to it is to get to the root. If you don't get to the root of it, you are not dealing with it right. And in, in an unforgiveness, we learned last week that the root of bitterness is one of the greatest concepts that you'll ever learn in dealing with people, and that is, the Bible says, the failure of the grace of God in our life. That is absolutely so monumentally important. What does it mean? I told you last week, but we got to set the stage for today, so I, we, I want you to make sure you understand where we were, because these two verses, two parts of these verses go together. The failure of the grace of God in your life and my life. That is the root problem of unforgiveness. It's simply this. We give ourselves grace. I've seen people all my life in the ministry want to pick out everybody else's problems, but they're not doing anything themselves. I've seen people complain about the church. You know, I don't like this or, or they don't like that. And yet they themselves give nothing to the church to have any say in what goes on. I've seen people say, well, you know what, I've seen so-and-so and so-and-so and, -so and this person, and I don't like them, or I don't like what they do. But the person themselves isn't doing anything. And what we do is we always give ourselves more grace for ourselves than we give somebody else. Grace isn't for you to give yourself. 
God gives you the grace you need. Your job is to take the grace that God has given you and give it to somebody else that needs it. And when that fails in your life, that is the failure of the grace of God. Uh, it's another thing is, is we, we see things that people do to us or say to us, and we forget about the fact that, you know, before we were saved and many times after we were saved, we have done some absolutely horrendous things to God. We don't think at a time before we were saved how many times we used God's name in the gutter of some of the most ungodly things we were part of. And yet God still gave us the grace he gave us the grace that he never held that against us. Well, if God can not hold it against me and you for what we did, then we ought to have that same grace that we can not hold something against somebody because they did something to us. And when we can't do that, that is simply called the failure of the grace of God in our lives. And that's where the root, the root, the root, the root of bitterness starts. The failure of the grace of God. That single concept right there was worth coming to church last week and this week if that's all you got out of it. Because that is the fundamental root problem of why God's people who are saved, going to heaven, going to be with Christ for eternity, carry grudges in this life and hold things against people in this life for 10, 15, 20 years. And it all goes back to a root. Every problem that we have as human beings will thread its way back to a root. And that's what you have to learn. Then I gave you, if you remember, eight characteristics of how bitterness grows and, and, and takes over your life. Bible says defiles you in that passage. You know, people in the Bible are likened to trees. One time in the New Testament, a guy was blind and God healed him, and he said, what do you see? And he said, I see men walking around like trees. Trees in the Bible are likened to people. When you want to find out your heritage, you go to, you go to your, check your family tree. And we talked about how that bitterness, like trees, have roots. And those roots, I gave you eight characteristics of, of trees, how that when these roots, what they do, how they grow best, and how it winds up taking over your life. And Last week we talked about Satan getting the advantage over you and then defiling you. Unforgiveness, ladies and gentlemen, is a choice. You don't want to ever say, well, I don't forgive because of how terrible a thing somebody did to me. Uh, that, unforgiveness is a choice. It's a choice we make. And we make that choice. Uh, when we make that choice, an automatic process takes over to defile you. And through the process of going down through the things that happen in your life because of the failure of the grace of God in your life, then Satan gets the advantage over you. And that's how it works. Now, I want to talk to you about uh, that choice today for just a minute, and then we're going to move into it. And I want to give you another principle over here, but just ask God's blessing on our time today. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us, all that you've given us. And today we ask, as we come to you, Lord, we ask you to help us to uh, put it all together today. These are good people. And Lord, none of these principles will work in, in uh, other people's lives until they work in our lives first. We need to be everything that God wants us to be. I know we're human. We make mistakes. We fail in all of the things that we do. But Father, uh, we've got a job to do. And in spite of that, we've got to uh, persevere to uh, Christ's return. 
So help us be faithful in all that we do, and we'll thank you and praise, praise, uh, thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it, Amen. Now I want to give you another great principle today <clears throat> on the aspect of of your ability to choose, because we all like victim status. <clears throat> victim status is good for us because it, in our mind, somewhat relieves us of any responsibility. I mean, if you're walking downtown, you know, and somebody comes up and puts a gun to your back and steals your wallet, uh, you're a victim. And you uh, can somewhat say, well, I didn't have any choice in it, you know. I mean, I was just going down to eat to a restaurant, and this happened to me. And that may be true. And so we like victim status because victim status always, uh, for a Christian, when you get into a situation like this, in unforgiveness, we use victim status all the time. Well, you just don't really understand what they did to me. My answer to that is, you don't really understand what you've done to God in your life. Say, But it's different because, you know, God never winds up being the victim. We always be, like to play the victim. But everything in life we do, every decision, good or bad, at the end of the day, it's our cho- choice. And I want you to understand today the basis behind that choice. Because this is another great counseling principle, and it's really a fundamental issue of human nature. And you know, that's really what, uh, that's really what dealing with people is. It's uh, dealing with, with human nature in its, uh, in its most basic pattern form. And uh, I was talking this morning to uh, Matt, uh, we're, and me and Cleon and Matt and his wife, we kind of, <coughs> we talked a couple of weeks like this. I didn't know you guys were into this, but... I, I really like I really like The Walking Dead, which comes on every Sunday night at ten o'clock. And I know most of you probably don't watch that and haven't even heard of it. But I'm much more spiritual than you are, so that's the answer to that one. But but the thing I like about it is is because Matt and I were talking about this this morning. Now, if you missed it last week, uh, one of the key players got killed at the end of the movie. And this is the way it always works, because this guy was the moral voice of the group, and now he got killed, and so the whole thing is going to turn now, see? And Matt and I were talking today about what, how, and this is the beauty of it. I mean, Cleon and I do the same thing. We talk about, well, what do you think is going to happen? Now, if I was like most of you, I'd be texting these guys when it's over. What do you think? What do you think? But I hate texting. <laughs> but... We, we talk about what's going to happen next because there's some things that have happened in the past that now we're here, we can look ahead and say, this has got to come back in someplace. There was a guy who got his hand cut off and he suddenly disappeared out of the picture. And now it looks like events probably are setting up that this guy now may come back into the picture. There's other things that now look like because this happened that, and what we do and I, this is what I really like about it. When you watch it, I know it's just a movie, and I know it's just a deal, but I love sitting down and watching something, remembering what happened, remembering where I'm at, and then trying to predict where it's going. And in this particular case, and this is what Matt and I were talking about this morning, it's real easy because the pattern of this movie, the way they've set it up, the way things happen, if anybody has a half an intelligence, you can predict where it's going in the next couple of episodes, and it's always right on the money. And I say that to you, not to make you a fan of The Walking Dead, but I say that to you because there's a pattern 
in this movie that they're putting out. And I say that to tell you that in dealing in life, there's patterns that you learn. And just as Matt and I and Cleon can sit down and then talk about and put a rational pattern together based on what's already happened, life is the same way when you learn the biblical principles. And this is why you've got to learn the root of every issue. You've got to be able to understand for whatever issue that happens, there's a root problem because when you see the root problem, it becomes very predictable of what it's going to play out. Human nature is always the same because some of you are tall, some of you are blonde, some of you are dark-haired, some of you, uh, you know, are, 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 are large, some of you are small, some of you are short. We think that because we're different that human nature is different. We think that because some of you have different personalities that that makes your human nature aspect different. That's a fatal mistake. That's not true. doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter how tall you are. It doesn't matter anything about your individual characteristics. The common thread that we all have here this morning that is very predictable, that follows patterns, is our human nature. And when you learn the root of each problem, just like Matt and Cleon and Wes sit around and say, what do you think is going to happen tonight? Matt had a great thing this morning, and I thought about it. I said, boy, that's going to happen. And then I said to Matt, ask him, I said, Matt, this is just like life. Didn't I tell you that? I said, it's just like life when you learn the patterns. Learning the patterns of human nature are the key to being able to see. I say it all the time, and it's something that by the time the Lord comes back, you're going to be so sick of hearing of. And it is simply being smarter than the problem. And I, you're starting to see now that when you call me with things or you say this, I'm hitting you with that. I'm saying, be smarter than the problem. And I'm telling you over and over again, that's the key. The key to being smarter than the problem is learning the root of human nature, why people do what they do and have the issues they have. When you learn that, then you're smarter than the problem. You're not smarter than the problem to take advantage of them. You're smarter than the problem to be able to help them. And also smarter than the problem that in the, in the process of trying to help them, you don't get caught up in it yourself. And that's very key. Now, <clears throat> your ability to choose is based on another great counseling principle. And as I said, it's the fundamental issue of human nature that sets the pattern. And it's simply something that is one of the greatest fundamental concepts that you're ever going to get into. It's called attitude and action. It's simply what we do in life is based on how we view life. When you get the right Bible-based attitude, which is based on the right biblical principles, then it'll always produce the right action. When you get the wrong attitude based on the wrong principles, it'll always produce the wrong action. Now, ladies, this is why if you've ever been married or you are married, this is a little thing to understand why what's really wrong with your husband and, why, and husbands back to your wives, except that happens more with husbands. How many times have you had a particular issue with your husband? Maybe your ex-husband. And the bottom line is, when you would confront them with it, they'd always be sorry. They'd always be, I won't do it again. And you take that at face value because the element in marriage is trust. And you take that at face value. And, and, and many guys never see this. The root problem with most marriages is simply what I'm about to tell you. 
And fundamentally, when you start peeling the ages back, you may have bitterness and anger and murder and all those things in there. But the bottom line, at the end of the day, this is where it's going to go. And this is the fundamental breakdown of all marriages, relationships, and probably just about everything in life. And this is certainly where the devil gets advantage of us. Your, your husband does something stupid or there's a particular problem that keeps going on and on and on. You keep telling him about it. You come in to see me. I, I talk about it. I show him the principles, show you the principles, try to get you on a pattern. It's good for a while, maybe two weeks, three weeks, or four weeks, but then very slowly it starts to drift back into it again, and it's a, it's a, it, starts to, uh, it starts to go back to what it was before, and then it happens again, and then you have another blow-up, and then you deal with it. He apologizes again, and then it goes right back to that same thing, and three weeks later, six weeks later, it falls back to it again. And after five or six or seven or ten or nine years of this going on, pretty soon the marriage is done. But you know what the problem was? The problem was every time the guy got caught in something that was the same issue, instead of dealing with the real thing that caused the problem, which was his attitude, he dealt with the action. You see, when you adjust the action, you fix nothing. Because the action is a direct result of the attitude. And you've got to fix the attitude. Most men don't have the right attitude about marriage. They don't see it what it is. They don't see it what it's for. They don't understand what the wife is. They have their own idea based on watching their own parents, everything they've heard, everything they read, and none of it has anything to do with the Bible. And suddenly, they get into a marriage that God has designed, that God has put out a manual that it has to run by, but their attitude is based on everything else they've seen <coughs> except the Bible, and that attitude produces the action which gets you in problems in the marriage. It works that way in everything in your life. Everything that we do, every action, Every action we do is based on an attitude that we have about what we've learned and the information we've gotten about that particular subject that produces that action. And so you never solve people's problems by adjusting the actions. And that's what happens, and that's why it doesn't last. Because the only thing that will fix whatever problem you've got is not dealing with the action. It's going to the root. And the root will always be the attitude about it, the information you have based on what you do. You see it with people all the time. There's a great verse in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. It says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's so true. And the heart forms your attitude. And when you don't know anything about marriage and you, you get a... And I'm just using marriage as an example. I mean, I could use every scenario of people get into. But marriage is one we all can identify with and it's the fastest one to do it with. When you have a guy that gets into a marriage and all his understanding of marriage is about the, the carnal side of it or what he's seen with his parents and what he's been trained or what he's read or what he's heard about with the guys or what he, and it's nothing to do with the Bible, then he enters into something with an attitude that is wrong about something that is going to be something that God designed and that wrong attitude is going to produce the wrong action every time. And women do the same thing. My point is not about whether it's your husband or her or she or that. My point is attitude versus action. Trying to fix a problem by just dealing with the action will never work because the root will always be the attitude. The aspect of unforgiveness is your attitude, your choice. I don't want to forgive. And that's where it comes from. And that's how you've got to understand out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
You know, we as individuals sometimes, we have issues that we have to deal with in our own personal lives. And every one of those issues, no matter what it may be, it's going to be based on what we've, we've, we've thought about it. Most people here, probably in this room, being the rednecks that you are, probably don't like Barack Obama. But be honest with you, be honest with you, none of us know Barack Obama. You know how your opinion of Barack Obama was formed? By the news programs you watch, by what you hear him say. Well, if you just bent by what you hear him say or what you hear somebody say about him, the bottom line is he may be a wonderful person when you sit down and talk with him. He may be a great husband. He may be a great father. He may be somebody that when you sit down and talk to him, I mean, do you believe everything the press tells you? I mean, you really believe that the Democrats are demonic and the Republicans are saints? Are you really so foolish that you think that Barack Obama is a terrible person, but if you put Newt Gingrich in or Mitt Romney or, or Von Paul or anybody else, that they're really going to be any better? But you see, the, the, the information we get forms our attitude. And so then our attitude, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we trash whoever we do. This is why in dealing with people, I'm telling you something. In my own personal life, I told you this, I think I said this Thursday night. My own personal life, I never make up my opinion about you based on what somebody else tells me. I never do. And you're smart if you follow the same line of reasoning. Now, most of you probably don't know this today, but you're in a cult here being today. And if you talk to people out there, you talk about, you, 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 they'll tell you you're in a cult. And I'm the most wicked person on planet Earth and a great cult leader. Yeah, right. Yeah, amen. Thank you, Fred. I appreciate that. But the truth of the matter is, truth of the matter is, when you come here, you know what a cult is? You know, like they think that the Jim Jones, some of your parents in the past have said, well, if he passed out, punch you. If he does, don't drink it. <laughs> no, we're much more than that. We have little needles in the seats, and when you sit down, it hits you in the rear end, and you get cooked, you see? And then you'd see those people rolling the seats with the rollers. They're not. They're re and filling up those little injections. <laughs> what they're doing. We just got it fixed. That they looks like they're rolling the lint. They're not rolling the lint. They're filling the little needles. And it doesn't matter. No, no. It doesn't matter what seat you take. We've got little needles in them. And there are people in the back right now. You think Phil's counting the attendance today? No. He's marking the seats that aren't nobody sitting in. We don't have to waste refilling those. I never make up my mind about anybody based on what somebody else says. That's stupid. I make up my mind based on getting to know you and who you are and knowing what you stand for and seeing what you love. That's how you make it up. Because people's opinions, man, you kidding me? You get one person that doesn't like somebody else or somebody that's got a, a you know, problem with somebody and you, know, you hear the most terrible things you ever want to hear in your life, all because that person has a personal attitude about it, and you never let that happen. Your attitude about anything has to be based on the information you get. And that Bible says, prove all things. I've had people tell me before about somebody who was so terrible, and I'm looking at this person and I'm thinking to myself, you do nothing in a church. You're not in any ministry. 
And the bottom line is, you want to tell me that that person is bad and you're good, and yet you're violating, the, sowing discord among the brethren? If you've got a problem with that person, why are you telling me about it? The Bible says, remember the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me? It says you go to that person. So right out of the chute, you're going to have a lot of credibility with me because you failed every Bible principle test that I've learned. You make up your own mind based on the biblical principles. I told you, somebody asked again Thursday night, the 16, uh, the greatest chapter on the Holy Spirit of God or definitive passage, and I told you it was in John chapter 16. And there's seven things that the Holy Spirit of God does. You know what the seventh one is? It shows you who's of God and who's not. You've got to learn that one. But attitude and action, it's everything. The right Bible doctrine and the right principles produce the right attitude with the right action. The wrong biblical principles will always produce the wrong action based on the wrong attitude. I don't tell you what to think. I just tell you, you need to think. It's the principles that you guide your life. That's how you work. But anytime in the world that we live in in Christianity, where anybody has any kind of hard line, they got to be a cult. You know why you got to be a cult? Because we're so wishy-washy out here, we stand for nothing. You stand for something. Ooh, there's got to be something wrong with you. Now, because you don't know this, 150 years ago, it was just the reverse. If you were wishy-washy, you were a liberal and everybody was strong. But you see what's happened in the last 150 years. You see, that's why it doesn't bother me, because I understand why it happens. It's attitude and action. The basis of our lives to forgive is simply to get the right doctrine, priesthood of the believer, let it form the right attitude, and then we'll follow the right action. And we'll forgive based on our attitude of heart, based on biblical principles, when you understand that I am a priest, and this is what a priest does. He reconciles men to God. A priest doesn't degrade other people. That's not what a priest did in the Old Testament. You find some Christian out there blasting somebody else, whether they're right and wrong or what they're saying. That's not what a priest does. Smarter than the problem. Now, the second part of this verse, laying the foundation from last week to this one, the second part of this verse is what we want to see, and it is probably the key to everything on life on planet Earth. What we're going to do right now we're going to move out of the practical side of things just for a moment. And I want you to see something that will help you in every aspect of your life. Honestly, you know it as well as I do. America, the world, in these last days before Jesus Christ comes, is literally an insane asylum run by the inmates. And I'll tell you what, it's hard. And many of God's people get confused today. They don't just get confused of the world. They get confused of Christianity. And I don't blame them. And the second part of this verse is what we want to see and look at today. And it's probably the greatest single key. And this is going to be somewhat of a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, it isn't going to be something that you're basically going to, uh, I mean, you better learn it. But it isn't going to be one of those things that you want to put on three-by-five cards, but there are certain things in the Bible that won't fit on a three-by-five card, but boy, you better etch them into your brain because it is the key. You know, I know of no other teaching in the Bible that will put everything on this planet, uh, past, present, and future, into perspective than what I'm going to give you. 
Verse 11 says, second part of this verse, for we are not to be ignorant of his devices. Now, this is the devil's devices. And what he's saying here, that you and I as a child of God should not be ignorant of how the devil is and what he tries to accomplish. And part of the devil getting advantage over you is simply you losing sight of this. The moment you lose sight of what I'm going to talk about for the next 30 minutes, he does have the advantage in your life. It is probably the single greatest thing that if I could ever say there's one thing just in a general sense as a Christian, you better never lose sight of. It's about what I'm about to tell you. Now, we are not ignorant of his devices, the last part of verse 11 says. Now, let me give you the Old Testament verse on this, and it's found in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21. And this is the definitive verse that goes along with this passage in verse 11. It simply says this, There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. And you know what? This is really dealing with people in a nutshell, really. The people that you deal with, the problems that they have. I mean, it's simply, uh, these devices are what causes man to fall. Now, check out sometime the word devices in your Bible. Check out Job 5.12 or Job 21.27 or Psalms 10.2 or Psalms 33.10. Psalms 37.7 is a good one or Proverbs 1.31. All told, I think there's 16 of them. They all deal with the devil and all deal with him in some place of trying to mess you up. You see, these devices are what man comes up with through the devil in his own heart to get him around the teaching of the Word of God. And in dealing with people, very simply, in dealing with people, uh, you're simply picking up the pieces of people's lives from the disastrous effect of putting the devil's devices in their lives instead of God's counsel. That's all you dealing with people is. I have never seen in all of my life, and I'm not talking about the world at this point. The world has always been the world. I have never seen Bible Christianity at more as a dysfunctional state as it is in 2012, right before the Lord comes back. Now, personally, I know that that's the way it's got to be. Personally, I understand the big picture. We're in a Laodicean church. The Laodicean church is the only church period that does not have an angel representing them before God's throne. Hello, it ain't going to be a good ending. The Laodicean church is the church that makes God sick. He's the church that says, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Hello, the end's not going to be pretty. The church today, and when we stop th- talking about the church, it's, it's, it's people. I have never seen God's people more have taken advantage of by the devil in everything that they do. God's people today can't put one foot in front of the other for the most part without stepping on a landmine that the devil has laid for them. It's the most unbelievable thing. I, I, I saw, you know, 40 years ago when I got into this, 40 years ago, about 1970, when I got into all of this, uh, God's people were totally different than they are today. There was an understanding of personal holiness. There was an understanding of the fact that when you got saved, your life was supposed to be different. That's not here anymore today. Now, we can blame it on people. We can blame it on whatever we want. End of the day is it's because that we don't have what we had back in 1970 that keeps people honest before God today. 
We have a Christianity today that there is no sin. We have a Christianity today that you can do whatever you want to do and justify it. And then when somebody tries to hold you accountable, you get mad about it. You got people that are involved in all kinds of ungodly stuff. And when you try to confront them about that, they get mad at you because you found out about it. It isn't, oh, I'm doing this terrible thing. It's, oh, you're wrong for finding me out. What's wrong with you? That's just God's people today. This is God's people today. I've seen it. I've seen the transition from it. And it makes me, I, you know, I, I love what I do. And I love the ministry. But I want to tell you something. The ministry today is one of the most. You better have a coat of armor on. And you better have some steel uh, into your gut. Because of the fact of the, what you've got to deal with. Nothing makes me angrier today than God's people who sit and hear the truth, know the truth, have the truth, and yet still keep can you make the most stupid, brain-headed st- decisions in their life. And it's because we live in a Christian world today that is about as functional as a corpse. And it's, it's on life support system. It does nothing. It gives nothing. It doesn't accomplish anything. They just are like little rats in a little maze trying to find their way to the cheese at the end, which we call heaven. But they make every bump. They make every bad turn. They do everything that they can. And it all comes down to what I'm going to talk to you about today. And then nothing, you know, I've got a lot of patience with people. Patience is, is something that God just gave me, probably to a fault. And I'll stay with people as long as they want to do right through every turn, every bad problem they're going to get into. But I'm going to tell you something. That doesn't mean that it doesn't sicken me on a whole process. It doesn't mean that, that, that when I see God's people who just continually make bad choice after bad choice after bad choice, and they seemingly, they, they, hear, the, they hear the message week after week after week. They get the Bible, they get the principles, but it's just like taking BBs and shooting them off a brick wall. They just bounce off. And it's because of where we're at today. It's because of that we are not ignorant of his devices. And it's because that we have so many disasters in our lives simply because we have put the devices of this world in our lives that come from the devil and forsaken the counsel of God. That's all there is to it. Now, I can shorten that up and give it to you in a very quick punchline. It's ignoring biblical principles in your life. It's when you have a three-by-five card that says something on it, and then you look at it and you read it, and you say, oh, I love this, and then you put it down and go do the exact opposite. That's what I'm talking about. Where is the stability in God's people today that makes us different from the world? God's people smoke, they drink, they fornicate, they do drugs, they do everything, and what's different anymore? And when you get caught in it, it's like, what do you mean talking to me that way? Why, don't you know that so-and-so does the same thing? Or don't you know that, that, uh, uh, that I, I'm saved now? And, and I'm... What's wrong with God's people today? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. The devil has the advantage over the church. And we'll talk about it as we come through this thing. But the second part of this verse is powerful. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 9 says, A man, a man's heart, devises his way, but the Lord directeth his path. Well, that's where you should be. 
It's where I should be. If I'm left to my own heart, I'll come up with everything that the world has, and I am no different than anybody else. We'll all take the devices of the world. We'll all get ourselves into circumstances and situations that sometimes we get through. Other times we pay a, a great price. Other times their consequences are so overwhelming that it changes everything about your life for the rest of your life. But a man's heart devises its own way. It'll always go. When you trust yourself, it'll always put you in the commode of life. But the Lord directs his path. And he does it because the Bible says there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. And so the Bible says we should not be ignorant of his devices. Or at least we shouldn't be. I told you last week there's only two forces at work in this planet. And this is where you got to step back and get the big picture. There's only two forces at work on planet Earth today, God and the devil. I told you last week that the devil has a plan for you, God has a plan for you. And you're going to fulfill one or the other. You will not be neutral. You will not be neutral. You either go with the God plan or the devil's plan. You are going to go with one plan or the other. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. It's all there is to it. And the history of planet earth revolves around, as you know this already, the nation of Israel, the land of God, the land that God gave them. And history is written by the victors of history. And you know what? At the end of World War II, all the histories you hear of World War II were written by the guys who won it. World War I, the history of World War I was written by the guys that won it. And when you're the victor, you pretty much can tell it from your side. And tell it the way you want it, and history's going to accept it. You can be an ally and win the World War II, and you can make the bad guys the bad guys, and the good guys the good guys at your own whim. Doesn't necessarily mean that all the good guys were good guys, and all the bad guys were bad guys. In most cases, many of the good guys are just as bad as the bad guys. But that's the writer of history. That's the prerogative that he gets when he wins. That's why you ought to love the Bible. Because the Bible's the greatest book on history. You know why? Because the guy that wrote it, already has the victory under his belt. So when he wrote history, he wrote it from the victorious standpoint, seeing it as the victor, only in this case, it's truth. It's truth. And when he says we are, should not be ignorant of his devices, you better understand that. And when you begin to understand history in its simplest form, and we get caught up in this, history is simplest form is just God and the devil, the two forces at work in this universe. Both want the land that God gave the nation of Israel. And God's going to get it rightfully his. And the devil uses all his devices to get it now. God has a plan for you. The devil has a plan for you. Now, based on what I just said, the devil hates this book. And I want you to understand what I'm about to tell you today. It's the greatest single thing that, that you're ever going to get about understanding it all. Because you're never going to figure out your own life until you figure out all of life. Now, you may be fine where you're at right now, because you may be not doing anything for the Lord, not going anywhere with the Lord, and you may just be as happy as a pig in mud in the world as you're in. But if you're ever going to step outside that bubble, if you're ever going to step outside into the real world and really deal with situations on a first-hand basis, you're not going to have to not only understand yourself first, you're going to have to understand the big picture of, of life itself. Just understanding your life will never cut it without understanding all of life. 
And the devil hates that book. And the reason why he gets advantage over God's people and Christianity is such the, a mess that it's in today is simply because he hates that book and he hates it fundamentally based on one chapter and one verse. This verse is the single most devastating verse to the devil, the most important verse in the Bible as to understanding his devices and basically understanding not just life in general for you and for me, but all life as it is, history, nations, people, the nation of Israel, the Middle East. And I know, you know, we're all big on prophecy now, you know, and all the stuff that's going on. But I'm telling you, if you don't understand where this thing, it's like watching The Walking Dead. I'm going to predict that Merle's coming back. I'm going to predict that things are going to happen. I am going to predict that that kid who lost the gun, that guy that escapes this week is going to find that gun. See, the pattern is there. And I'm also telling you on a larger scale, when you learn the pattern of life, Israel's not going to let Iran get a bomb. An American can sit on his hands and try to politic all they want. The Israel is not going to let that happen. You see, for us, if Iran gets a bomb and bombs and, and sets it off in Jerusalem or someplace, for us, it's an oops. For them, it's the end. But here's the pattern. If you know anything about the Bible at all, you know they're not gonna, you're not going to set a bomb off. That ain't going to happen. That would certainly put the end of the nation of Israel. Drop an A-bomb or drop a nuclear weapon on Israel, it'll be all over. We know from our pattern, it ain't going to be all over with Israel. So put it together, boys and girls. If they're not going to drop the bomb, and they're going to get the bomb, gee, I wonder what's going to keep them from dropping the bomb. It ain't going to be us. It's going to be Israel. We don't have the, we don't have the guts to do it. Israel's got the guts to do it. And when they do it, it's going to set the stage for this thing to happen so rapidly what's going to take place, and everybody's going to turn against Israel. America's going to have to turn against Israel. And it's, it's just like producing the, uh, predicting the next couple of episodes of The Walking Dead. The pattern is set. You don't get that by watching CNN. You don't get that by watching Bill O'Reilly. You don't get that by watching The Five. You don't get that by watching Fox News. You get that by reading the book of the author who wrote history with the victory in his hand. And you see the patterns. Now, you can take that same thing on a pattern on a global scale, and you can put it into people's lives, starting with yours, and move it right on down the line. I can look at some of you sitting out there, and I can safely say that probably six months from now, you will still not be, you will not be in this church. It's not because I'm going to do anything to put you out. It's not because anything's going to necessarily make you mad to leave. It's just going to be the fact that you already got it down inside you, and it's festering right now, and because you're not willing to deal with it, it's going to take its natural course. There's a pattern. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. This verse is the single most important verse in the Bible to understand it all. Whether it's history, nations, people, Israel, the Middle East, churches in the messes they're in, God's people, and what a sickening state Christianity is in. All of it. You see, the devil knew to pull off his great plan of deception. He had to paralyze the two identities. 
He had to, first of all, in the Old Testament, paralyze the nation of Israel. He did. And then he turned his attention to the church, and he knew he had to paralyze the church. And he did. As we speak today, that has been accomplished. He had to paralyze and neutralize the two identities that God had used and built to carry out his plan. And to render you and me, God's people, powerless. And to reduce Christianity and churches and Christians to a state of confusion. And the point of being totally ineffective. And boy, (laughs) that's where we are. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. He had to get rid of one book, and in particular, one passage, and in particular, one verse that revealed his devices, that any man could see it and figure him out and never, never, never let the devil get an advantage over him again. You know, William Tyndale, one of the early English translators, You have a King James Bible in your lap this morning. William Tyndale produced an English translation back in about 1500. When the King James translators in 1603 began to translate and put the final English version of the Bible out to the English-speaking world, 95% of the King James Bible is based on Tyndale's Bible. Tyndale was an incredible guy. 117 years before the King James Bible came out. He was having a discussion with some of the theologians in Oxford University that that were not of his persuasion. See, Tyndale believed that the common man needed to have a common Bible. Tyndale believed that the Word of God was for everybody, not for just the scholars. And he's having a debate, and they're kind of giving him a rough time, and he looks out the window and he sees a, a plow boy out there plowing a the field. And he said to him, he says, Someday, General, that plow boy will know more about God and the Word of God than all the scholars of England. 117 years before it came out, Tyndale made a fate by being strangled and being burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for heresy. The heresy was believing that book was the Word of God. His last prayer, before they snuffed out his life, wasn't about himself. Wasn't, oh God, get me out of this. Here's a man who lived for one thing all of his life, and that was the of the common man of Bible. The same Bible that you and I have in our lap today that we don't bother to read. The same one that we just don't really pay any attention to. Oh, we carry it to church, but we don't really do anything with it. We carry it to church as our badge of honor. We're a Christian. But it means nothing to you. You don't know anything about William Tyndale. Don't know anything about him at all. And yet if you read what is publicly stated about him and form your attitude on that, you'd find out that just about everybody out there hates him like they do me. Or you if you stand for the book. But on that time, as they put that old cord around his neck and began to strangle the life out of him, the last thing he prayed was, Oh, dear God, open the king of England's eyes. And 117 years later, God answered that prayer, and England brought forth the Bible you've got in your lap right now. And the devil wasn't happy about it. 
he wasn't happy about it. You see, 150 years ago, there was only two Bibles on this planet. There was God's Bible and there was the devil's Bible. And if you don't think the devil has a Bible, you're out of your mind. And this whole world knew where God's Word was. I can't be speak for the world today because they've lost their mind. I can't speak of the world today. It's like looking for a diamond in a, one of those Johnny on the spots that hasn't been cleaned out for about nine months. Today we have 600 plus Bibles. And the Bibles always say something different. And the devil has copied his purpose of getting God's people uh, not to be able to see his devices anymore because in churches today in Christianity, confusion is the state of the church. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, 33 that God is not the author of confusion. I was reading a statement of faith by a big church in Kansas City this last week. And it simply said, we preach out of the King James Bible, but we are no more a King James only church by any stretch of the imagination. We embrace all translations to help us study God's Word. Now, to me, that's a lot like a guy saying to his wife, honey, I'd never commit fornication or adultery on you, but I am going to watch pornography all I can. What's the point? You're going to teach out of the King James Bible, but you're going to include and encourage everybody to read the other ones? What's the point? What's the point? What's the point? Somebody gave me this last night. Here's a new church that some of you probably ought to check out. You'd like it here. I don't know nothing about this. I got this from somebody that her name sounds like Eve. <laughs> it simply says, come discover our brand of new digs. Now, I don't know what a dig is. Do you know what a dig is? If I was an archaeologist, that would be digging up dead man's bones or something. Probably fits for this church anyhow. But here's what it is. This is called Discover Church. At Discover Church, we dress casual. We rock out when we worship. Well, we do too. I'm not against rock and roll. My feet is on the rock. My name is on the roll. I'm with you. Somehow I don't think that's what they're talking about. We rock out when we worship. Our lead pastor, Mike, Loves to help people learn how to live a life of discovery. We love kids. We love coffee. You will find a lot of both at our new digs. Whatever happened to the Bible? When you have a church that you've got to be afraid to say, we believe the Bible is the Word of God and we stand on the Bible and I've got to allure you in with night programs for your kids or a pot of coffee <laughs> and then disguise my church service as a dig. So the more I think about it, the more I like it. But when you come here, I'm going to dig into every private thing you've got hid. So I like that. I don't think that's his intent. I'm not sure what a dig is. I'm not sure I want to know what a dig is. I know in music, when you have a job, it's a gig. I understand that. In churches, I've never heard we're going to have a Sunday morning dig. (laughs) 
The devil's end result was to get this Bible out of your hand. And he's done that. And churches today that make statements like we preach out of the King James Bible, we embrace all the other, all the other translations. That's just a, you know, that's a, it doesn't make any sense. Amen. It just doesn't. I mean, it's part of his devices. I mean, I've always looked at it very simply this way. The ASV came out in 1901. The RSV came out in 1888. They've been around for a while. They re-updated in the 1976. The new NIV came out, and it was a big deal, you know, and they updated a little bit in the 80s and all that stuff. Been around for a while. And the devil knew that by, by bringing that corrupt Bible, which has changed in over 60,000 places from yours, uh, King James Bible, uh, and can, comes off the manuscripts out of, out of, of, the, of, out of the Vatican, it, you know, he, he, he knew that he could get a bunch of people. And all the evangelicals and all that, or all the other crowd that were never Bible-based anyhow, they bought into that like a heartbeat. But he still had Baptist. And I look at, I look at the NIV crowd and the ASV crowd as, as, as really stupid. But then he got Baptist. Then he got Baptist because they were really, really stupid. And when he got Baptist, he wanted to nail them down and take the devices of the counsel of God and give them his devices. He came out with a new King James Bible. And it sounds good. But in reality, the new King James Bible has 100,000 word changes from mine. It departs 1,200 times from the Greek text and puts in the readings of the RSV and the NIV and the ABC and everything else. But because Baptists are stupid, because they're prideful, because they want to they wanna, they wanna be up with everybody else. And because deep down inside, they have an absolute hatred for this book. Because the devil hates this book. Hey, I'm going to tell you something. You can get mad at me. I gave you another church to go to, so we're covered on that basis. <laughs> but the bottom line is this. If you like an NIV or an ASV, and I'm not talking about you here today, because some of you may have one and you just don't know. So please exclude yourself from this. I'm talking about a man that should know. You show me a pastor that preaches and loves an NIV or holds up an NIV or a New King James Bible. You can believe whatever you want to believe from my studies on it from 40 years and what I know about it and what I can figure out about it and I know what's true on it. I don't want anything to do with that crowd. That is as demonic as you had a Ouija board being passed out on Sunday morning. But because it's a Bible, we think it's a difference. Oh, hang on. Hang on. We're coming to that point. We're coming to that point. Now, when we talk about his devices, we're really talking about one verse. And the devil had to get rid of this verse because if you get this verse down, you'll see him and see his devices all through history. Once you see it all through history, then you can put it into the church. Once you see it into the church, then you can see it in the lives of people. Listen, kid, I'm telling you, that Bible is more dangerous than an atomic nuclear warhead. You say, oh, come on, Bob, what are you talking about? Oh, I'm telling you the truth. I'll tell you the truth. You say, what do you mean the Bible is more, more dangerous than a, than a nuclear bomb? But I'll tell you why. Because I don't know of any nations that ban nuclear bombs. I know 30 nations that ban that book. Now you tell me. You want some enlightenment? The lights are going to come on. The devil knows the most powerful, destructful force on this planet is what William Tyndale said. The most powerful, destructful force on this planet is a common man with a common Bible. Amen. And when the devil took that out of our lives, he gave us big churches with a lot of fluff, and everybody gets along, and there's no Bible, there's no doctrine, but everybody has a lot of praise, they have a lot of worship, they just don't have any truth. 
And the Bible says we should not be ignorant of his devices. Now let me show you something. Turn back to Job chapter 40 and chapter 41. I'm going to show you this verse the devil had to get rid of. This is why Baptist churches take the word Baptist off their name. They get the wrong book. They get caught up in his devices. They forget who they were. They forget and they start worrying about everybody else. They forget about taking a stand because they have no guts. So the first thing they do is they want to apply. They want to, they want to be for everybody. Let me tell you something right now, folks. I love you all. I hope you all come back and stay forever. But at the end of the day, this church isn't for everybody. And I'll never pretend that it is. I don't want everybody. You'll have people who come in here and check this thing out, and they'll say, you know what? This is for me. This is what I've been looking for all my life. Good. Take a seat. Have other ones come in and say, oh, boy, that's way over my head. I don't want to get that involved. Here, here, here. Pick this up on the way out. Go get a dig. <laughs> Maybe a dig is something you dip in your coffee while you're drinking it. Maybe that's the truth. Matt, we need to go to work on that. See if we can find this pattern here. I think this guy's from The Walking Dead. Well, Job chapter 40 and 41 are the two greatest chapters in the Old Testament on the devil. I don't know if you know that. They're split into two chapters. In chapter 40, it's the greatest chapter on the devil as the Antichrist. In chapter 41, it's the greatest chapter in the Old Testament on the devil as the person and what he does. Now, the two greatest chapters that have the Bible's consistent, so you've got two great chapters in the New Testament. We're not going to get into it, but I'll give them to you so we're consistent. And they follow the same pattern. Revelation chapter 12 is the greatest chapter in the New Testament on the devil himself. Matches up to Job chapter 41. And Revelation chapter 13 is the great chapter that matches up to Job chapter 40. And that'll be the greatest chapter in the New Testament on the person of the Antichrist. But in Job chapter 41, verse 13, a question is asked. And a question is asked, uh, talking about the devil. And God asked the question, and it's one of those things that God asked, but he's already going to give you the answer. And the question is there, and who can discover the face of his garment? Talking about the devil. Now, you can if you have a King James Bible. In Job chapter 41, verse 12, God tells us an amazing thing about the devil. And it is this single verse he hates. It's this single verse found in this chapter that's about him, that's in a book that all points to God's victory, which he hates, that he doesn't want you to see. Because when you do, you'll understand, one, his devices, two, and when you understand his devices, you'll never be in a position where he can get advantage over you again in anything in history, anything in churches, anything in religion, anything in your own personal life. It won't matter if it's history, religion, science, philosophy, or life in general. It's just that simple. God says in 41.12, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Talking about the devil. I'll read it again. I will not conceal his, the devil, parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. For all you literary geniuses out there, anybody know where the term came from? All the life is a stage. Anybody know? Any of you deep literary thinkers out there? Anybody know where it came from? Who? Who? Yes, Shakespeare said it. Shakespeare said it. Very good, honey. Do you know what play he said it in? That's okay. You know what play he said it in? It was his famous play, The Walking Dead. 
it's the play was all about you. And in the play, it was about seven stages of a man's life. Now, I find that interesting. Will Durant, many, many years ago, I bought his 15 volumes on, on history. Will Durant was an unsaved historian. If you can ever find his volumes, there's like 16 of them. They're about that thick, each one. William Durant was one of the greatest prolific writers on history of America, Europe. He did a thing on Caesar and Christ. He did a thing on the Renaissance. And all in all, it's the most worthless thing you'll ever get your hands on as far as any information. But once you know the Bible, it becomes one of the most valuable things because it shows you where men like Will Durant come from, where they get the devices by which they write, and what they say. And he has a book on, on Shakespeare. Because Shakespeare, whether you know it or not, Shakespeare wrote right when your King James Bible was coming out. He's a contemporary of, of the King James Bible. And Shakespeare, in that play, that play All About You, uh, oh, excuse me, it was uh, All About You, As You Like It, uh, he, uh, he, he lists out the seven stages of a man in his life. And I always thought that was interesting because while he was writing that, the King James translator would translate the Bible that has seven stages of spiritual growth in it, the Bible. But the thing that Shakespeare said always got me because I know that unsaved men always come up with something, the devices of the devil. And the very fact that he come up with the idea that all of life is a stage. When I got into the Bible years later, I found that that is very true from a Bible standpoint. The Bible says that I will not, dis I will not, uh, I will not, uh, uh, conceal, uh, have discovered the face of his garments. That's what it is. The face of his garments. And what you find when you get into the Bible and you get a upper level handle on the Bible, you find that Shakespeare was right. He didn't know he was right. Shakespeare had no idea there were seven stages of spiritual growth. He was busy about the seven stages of man in his fleshly life. But you're going to find that in history, the Bible is a seven-act play. And each act is where the devil changes garments from one act two to act three to act four to act five, right up to act seven. When you look at history through a seven-act play and you see the changing of his garments, you'll never be ignorant of his devices. That's why he hates that verse. That's why he hates the fact that the Bible says that, that, uh, that uh, God says, I will not conceal his parts, his power, or his comely proportion. Three areas that God shows us, uh, the devices of the devil. So we should not be ignorant of his devices. Every, every tactic is laid out. Now, Bible says, I will not conceal his parts. I'm going to take you through the Bible and define parts for you in just a minute nor his power, but to take you through the Bible and, and define power for you, and his comely proportion. I'm going to take you through the Bible and define his comely proportion. When you get these three down, obviously we don't have time to get into it to the length we'd like to today, but you'll see where I'm going with this. Now, the NIV, Job chapter 41, 12. And this is what the devil does with all the new translation. He hates the book because the book reveals his parts, his power, and his comely proportion. So he comes up with his own book that masks all the cross-references. There's at least 150 cross-references between what I'm going to give you here and the devil through the rest of the Bible. When he changes the verses in an NIV, he changed the, he, you, you lose forever the trail of cross-referencing that you'll never discover, never discover the face of his garments. Because the NIV says, I will not fail to speak of his limbs nor his strength, nor his graceful form. 
Now try to run that through your Bible sometime. The New King James Bible has the same reading because the King James Bible is off the same corrupt manuscript. And it says basically the same reading. God says, I will not conceal his parts. Now, when you study it in the Bible, parts are the men that the devil uses. They're part of his plan. I told you, God has a plan for you. The devil has a plan for you. When you don't become part of God's plan, you become part of the devil's plan. I'll show you. Turn it over to Daniel. Parts are men he uses that are part of his plan. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 41 and 42, it's talking about men now who become linked up to the Antichrist and this strange thing of iron mingled with clay. Iron in your Bible will always be connected to the devil. Clay in the Bible will always be connected with man in a human form. See Jeremiah chapter 18, down around verse 2, where he talks about Jeremiah going down to the potter's house and the potter making clay, a picture of a man molding him. He says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 41 and 42, And whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay, here it is, and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broke. That's people he's talking about. That's men. Men, when it says, I will not conceal his parts, the unsaved men who get his devices are part of his plan, and he reveals who they are. That's why when you look at history from Christ on, you find five men in history that typify the Antichrist. When you go from Calvary back to the beginning of the Bible, you find 18 types of the Antichrist, 23 in total. The Bible says, I will not conceal his parts. And when you start to deal with people, we go over to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are seven things listed there that when you start dealing with people, you don't want to find the people involved in. And that's how you use that in a practical sense. You have your father the devil, and the lust of your father you should do, John 8, 44. So he says parts. Parts are men, people. You want to find in history where the devil is? Study the men. Find out who these men are. Find out what they believe. Find out about... You want to find out in pastors and churches today? The parts? You want to know what part is for God? What part is for the devil? You can make it real simple. Just look at the Bible they use. I'm not saying they're dying and going to hell. I'm saying Christianity is in such a deplorable state that we have lost our advantage. The devil has the advantage and we are in confusion. And it's all because once you lose the book, you lose the devil. Once you lose the devil, it's like Freddy Krueger sneaking up on you in the middle of the night. You never know what hits you. Now, the second thing he says there, God says, I will not conceal his parts. Then he says, I will not conceal his power. Now, the power will be nations. Nations give the devil his power. The devil is called right now at this time the God of this world. He runs the nations. He runs the nations in the Old Testament. He ran the nations now in the New Testament. You don't see the structuring of nations in the Middle East and what's going on without understanding what the devil is doing. It's being set up. He's usually actually using the nations for his power to come against the nation of Israel, which God is going to take then in turn and use for the second coming of Christ and destroy him. But that's what you got. Revelation 17, 2. With whom the kings, talking about the devil, 
with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Here it comes. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The nations buy into the devil. He runs the nations. He ran Napoleon. He ran Stalin. He ran Roosevelt. He ran everybody on this planet that is in charge of a nation. And the only time he didn't run this nation is when it was in its infancy, when they still had the book. The moment he lost the book, this nation lost its advantage. The devil took the advantage, and this is what we got today. The moment churches stopped preaching the book, for 400 years, the greatest Philadelphian church period was because of one book. The moment pastors started, stopped preaching the book, took the other book, the very moment the devil, we lost the advantage, the devil got the advantage, and we're in a state of confusion, and that's why Christianity is the way it is today. Revelation 13, 7. That one was given to him, the devil, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him, here it comes, over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So his power comes from the nations. He gives the nations their power. He controls their leaders. Do you see the example in the Old Testament? Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, king of Persia, Shennacherib, Pharaoh, it's endless. But we don't learn from history to understand how to apply it to where we're at today. What nations you see gets his power through nations. And he does that because the devil has two sides to him that you need to know about. The first side is the political side. So he uses the political intrigue to get into nations and the United Nations all around the political thing and the devices he puts in because the word of God is gone. The devil takes everybody today and every nation today and that's why every nation on planet earth except one is turned its back on the nation of Israel. And America's right behind. God's people don't figure it out. You know why? Because you got a book or you've been hanging out with a crowd that doesn't have that verse in it. Your pastor couldn't figure that out if somebody put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. His brains would be over the wall. If he's got any, might just be a bullet hole. When you lose the book, you lose the traceable evidence that we were not ignorant of his devices because God through that book reveals his parts and his power. And when you look at that and you realize what happens in nations, now you understand what happens in churches most of you have come from. What are they? They're just little nations. They're a political game that everybody plays. And that's why there'll never be any politics in this church. That's why political aspect of it is as far as I, I hate it. I've seen it all my life. This church stays out of politics. It has no, I mean, I don't vote for the, I don't like the Republicans, and I don't, I vote for Jesus. That's the, write his name in, and I'll put my name on the deal. Amen. Because everything is coming to an end, and nobody's going to fix nothing. You want it to be fixed, because you want to go to the lake, and gas is $4 a gallon. You want it to fix, because you got this, and you got that, and it costs too much. You want it fixed, because your house payment's going up, and all of this stuff, and you can't make it. The reason why you can't make it, it's called not going up, it's because you haven't taken what God's given you, give him his portion, so now you're paying the price for it. But you're too stupid to see that. You're a victim. You're a victim. You're a victim. With nations, you see, he gets his power through the nations. The political entourage that goes on through history. 
And through those nations, he positions himself, and this is where the why the world is where it's at. But to get the world where it's at, he's got to get the churches where it's at. We'll get to that into a moment. Ezekiel chapter 31, verses 1 through 9 is a great passage. And it's a great picture of this. It shows the power of politics. The Bible lays into a great tree. And that great tree spreads out its branches and its roots, and it encompasses all the other trees, being nations. And this one great tree, the devil, compounds all the other trees and the beasts, unsaved men, take shadow under his thing, and the birds lodge in his boughs of his tree, unclean spirits. God says, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. The second tactic of the devil is religion. And just like he, down through history, I don't know if you can even get your head around this. You're so messed up on watching everything else and putting your attention on everything else. Did you ever figure it out? Did you ever know that in the history of the world, in the history of the New Testament anyhow, in the history from Christ's death on, in the history of the world, there's only been one nation on planet Earth, one nation, one nation on planet Earth that was not a church-state country. Do you know what a church-state country is? A church-state country is a country that because of the political devices that the devil has put in, that church not only becomes politics to the devil, it becomes his religion. So the, the church becomes part of the official state. When you're born in that country, you are automatically not born as a Romanian. You're born in the religion. When you're born in England, you're a church of England. You're Anglican. You don't have a say about it. You're automatically, there's only one nation on the face of this planet that never from its inception to now was a church state set up where you had to be forced by birth to be a religion and it's this nation here because of that book right there. Don't you get it? Don't you want to get it? The first words out of the devil's mouth, Genesis chapter 3, 1, what he wanted to throw mankind into wreck and ruin was, yea, hath God said, and he changed what he said, just like they do with that. See this book here? Yea, hath God said. If it isn't the absolute final word of God, I'm out of here. That I'm wasting my time. I'll go get a job for a rotor-rooter and... Do colonoscopies or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, hath God said. And it wasn't a statement. It had a question mark after it. And that's what the devil's done. That's what he does in your life. That's why when you come on Sunday morning and you hear the truth of the word of God, somebody else will pull you aside and put a question mark on it. You'll come to church and hear the Word of God taught. You'll talk to somebody else. Why well, go to this church? Oh, and he'll put a question mark on it. That's what he does. He's not in the statement business. He's in the question business. Question what God says. Question everything about it. Don't take it for what it is. Question it because you can't trust it. But, oh, and I'll tell you what it really means. Let me tell you what it says. When they took over the King James Bible... What they did was, is they put out Bibles that you couldn't understand. And when you couldn't understand it, you'd go to the preacher. And when you went to the preacher, because he was a scholar, you'd say, Preacher, what's this verse mean? And he'd tell you, you don't understand that. you got to go to the Greek. 
When you go to the Greek, you get the real meaning. Well, preacher, I don't know Greek. I'm a plumber. I don't know Greek. I'm an electrician. I don't know Greek. I'm just, I'm just a common guy. Oh, that's okay, son. I'll tell you what it means. You see, as a plumber, electrician, and a common person, when you didn't read it, you could go to God and the Holy Spirit of God and show you what it meant. You got a guy that tells you he's going to tell you what the Bible means? Run away from that guy as fast as you can. God gave you a book no man needs to tell you. I may lay it out for you, but brother, I'm telling you right now, you get it, but that Holy Spirit of God, he's the one that leads and guides you into all truth, not to me. My job is to make sure you stay in truth, but his job is to lead and guide you into all truth. And I'll never, 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 never tell you that that word doesn't mean this, that you got to go to the Greek. The Holy Spirit of God can't tell you what it is, and that isn't his book, that we're all in the wrong business in the wrong place. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says, And no marvel, oh, it is a marvel to us because we're so stupid. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel. Of, oh, my goodness. I thought the devil had a red union suit with a big horns and a pitchfork and a big old long tail. And he just walked around. And you could tell him, the devil is an angel of light? Yeah, absolutely. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, because of what he said, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. He has one side that's political. The other side is religious. And he'll play one against the other. He'll take over a country politically. He'll bring in his state religion. And then he'll use that nation to wipe out Bible believers on a on a, on a church-state religious setup. He'll come into a place, a, a Baptist church that, that believes the Bible is the Word of God. The pastor will get, get caught up in scholarship. He wants to be recognized as a smart guy. And so the devil suddenly brings it in and says, you can't trust that book. you got to get you a Greek lexicon. Don't you know those words that don't really have the root meaning in it? You really want to feed your people? Go to the Greek and find out what that word is. You're out of your mind. And then he just simply says, oh, don't leave the Baptist church. Don't go to one of my churches. I mean, there was plenty of people I got to go to my churches, but not you Baptists. You're too smart for that. You'll never become to go to one of my churches. So that's okay. I want you to stay here. Change your name of Baptist. Take Baptist off of it. Make it it something real slick. If you're over by the racetrack, call it Raceway. Make it real slick. Make it something that, make it, make it community love bug dig church. Make it something that flashy, something that people will really grab. Stay in a Baptist church. You know, just take the name Baptist off. You're all good people. You know, stay here, but just do this. You can stay. Don't come to my church. Stay in your church. Just use my Bible. This is why Christianity is a mess it is, and this is why God's people are worthless. And when you look at somebody out there in Christianity or all Christians, scratch your head and say, what in the world is going on? This is the answer. You lose your book, it's God's mind. You lose your book, you lose your mind. 
God help, because all you got left is your mind and my mind. Boy, I know where that's going to go. Now, within these three things, the devil works three ways. And I don't have time to develop this today, because I want to close here in just a second. But he works through camouflage. He camouflages things. He works through counterfeits. He counterfeits things. He imitates things. Angel of light. And then when that does work, he compromises. Stay in your church, just use my Bible. Keep preaching the King James Bible from the pulpit. Just don't ever say anything about it manuscript evidence-wise. That's compromise. If you believe enough that it's the Word of God to preach from your pulpit, then you ought to be man enough to tell people why. And if you don't, you're a crook. I don't care how many big cars you drive around and how think tough you think you are. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. Now, thank you. As a Christian priest, after Christ's priesthood, my work, your work for God, and God's plan is for you. God gave you His Spirit, lives inside you. He gives you His mind, the Word of God. And he gives you his body, the local church. Those three things have to stay consistent. We have to have the right spirit, have to have the right mind, to have the right body. It's just that simple. I mean, come on, guys, you know that's true. Your wife tells you all the time, you are out of your mind if you think I'm going to do that. You hear it all the time. You've got to have the right spirit. You've got to have the right mind to have the right body. And when you don't, well... We're not to let the, death, the, death, the devil get the advantage over us. And the reason why we do that is the first thing we do, we're told not to give any place to the devil, Ephesians 4. And the second thing we do is we make no provision for the flesh. The moment you buy into one of these churches, buy into anything that's out there today in Christianity, I'm skeptical of it all. And I'm not perfect. This church is not perfect. This is per Wherever you got churches, you're going to have imperfect people. You better get used to that. Let me put it into context for you. Always accept churches, imperfect people, because we're all imperfect. Just never accept a church with an imperfect Bible. Amen. You want a good rule of thumb to follow in life? There it is. Accept imperfect people. I accept them all the time. I'm imperfect. And I, some of you drive me up the wall. But you know what? If you had to deal with my issues, I'd drive you up the wall. We're all imperfect. That's not a problem. I never met a perfect church. People walk around and say, well, there's so many imperfect people. Well, that's good. Job security for me. And I'm looking at a bigger page. Good job security for him. What would God do if everybody was perfect? Well, that's a theological point, because you know what? When we all get to heaven, everybody is perfect. Do you do know what God does? That's a good theological point. Just hit me like a light of, like bolt of lightning. But anyway, churches are filled with imperfect people. We're all imperfect. You know, don't get focused on that. Do, what, what do you, somebody said one time, well, there's just a lot of people in the church that's got problems. I said, yeah, what are you doing to help them? We're not doing anything to help them. I mean, anybody can sit around and say, well, I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like that. Like, I can stand up here and say, I don't like that, I don't like that, I don't like you, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like this, I don't like that. What good does that do? You know what? We're always going to find things that are imperfect. And when you get the idea that a church has to be perfect, you've got the devil's got the advantage over you. And you're going to get prideful. You're going to get this. Somebody's going to hurt your, bend your nose the wrong way, and you're going to get upset. Bottom line is there's no perfect church. There's no perfect people. You make sure the church you're going to has a perfect book because when you go from a perfect church with has got a perfect book or an imperfect church with a perfect book to an imperfect church with an unperfect book, you're really in trouble. I'm not sure I said that right, but you know what I'm talking about. 
To know that book is to understand how your enemy works in all areas. I call it simply in history, in science, in world events, and dealing with people's everyday problems. I simply call it being smarter than the problem. That's why the devil hates that book. One verse. God says, Bob, you get in that book, believe it's my book, and I'll make sure the devil never gets an advantage over you. I'll, never, I'll, I'll make sure you're not ignorant of his devices. I'll take you through the Bible and I'll show you without going to the Greek what his devices are. I'll give you the key verses on without going to the Hebrew. I'll run you over the New Testament and show you the two greatest chapters on the devil without ever going to the Greek and open a Greek lexicon. I'll tell you, shoot, tell you the two back in the Old Testament, ever, open, ever cracking a Hebrew Old Testament. I'll give you everything you need to know. And then I'll teach you, Bob. I'll show you by the Bible that I wrote you in English. I'll show you so you're never caught up in it. I'll show you what his parts are. I'll show you what his power is. And I'll show you his comely proportion. I'll reveal them to you. Because, Bob, you're not to be ignorant of his devices. When you got the book, you got a chance. No book, no chance. Smarter than the problem. <clears throat> These are the things that we'll, we'll learn throughout this book. These are the things that we'll fine-tune next year. When we get into our men and women's prayer groups coming up this time, one of the things that I'm going to do, because I realize that just about everybody who's going to be part of this is probably going to be there, I'm going to lay out for you how we're going to do it. I'm going to show you the structure. I'm going to show you the organizational model we're going to use. I'm going to show you how we're going to do different aspects of it, and then we're going to go to work. And then next prayer group will be back on our regular thing. But we're going to use this because it will go through the prayer group, both men and guys. I want to leave you one last verse that I think is probably worthy of a 3 by 5 card and worthy to be in your heart. It really sums up everything that we're trying to do. For those of you who are studying long laboring hours and belittling laboring how to get your verses in the back and how much to put in, how not to put in, I love all that. You fret over the fact that, you mean, it used to be a time you used to fret over the bills, fret over this, fret over that, but now you fret over getting your verses in the Bible right. That's a good thing to fret over. But I want to give you one of the greatest verses that you carry with you when you get overwhelmed. Because it always brings you back that you're doing the right thing. And when you're doing the right thing, you get the right attitude. When you get the right attitude, you always get the right action. Proverbs 16.1, here it comes. Greatest single verse in the Bible that you want to take home today for what you're at trying to learn. The preparation of the heart of man. That's what you're doing right now. You're preparing in your heart, doing all the things you're doing. That's your job. The preparations of the heart of man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. You do your part, he does his part. You put it in your heart, he puts it in your tongue. And it's from him. Just that simple. Well, now you have two of the greatest concepts that we are not to be ignorant of his devices. Lest Satan get the advantage over you, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You have a glimpse of what it is. Something to work with. No way. I, I'd be, we'd be here till 5 o'clock this afternoon trying to lay it all out. But you have enough now to understand from where we're at what we need to do. Let's pray.